In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. John Muir had this really fascinating quote that I love. He said, thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wildness is a necessity. And when I read that in my, you know, a couple years ago when I found it, I love quotes for people who didn't realize that. I thought this is an incredible insight from a guy who knew nothing about medicine, that our society is becoming sick because it's over-civilized. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. I want to thank everybody who has been willing to share the episode, click five stars, review. We have been on the Apple charts, mental health, health and fitness. We've been trending globally because of the amazing audience that we have and your willingness to share our episodes. We really are blessed with the opportunity to have amazing conversations with great people. I know a lot of people value this kind of content. We just really continue want to, to receive that support. So five stars right now would be great. A review even better sharing the episode. Much needed. According to the CDC, 60% of American adults are stricken with a chronic illness. And this drives our $4.1 trillion healthcare industry. So what does that mean? It means now if you are healthy, you are in the minority. Sick has become the new normal. And private industries are getting rich off our collective sickness. Hippocrates said that the greatest medicine of all is teaching people how not to need it. The answers from our medical establishment clearly demonstrates that there really isn't that much of an incentive to understand the factors that are contributing to our illness. Rather, we're just prescribing drug after drug that may temporarily mask or decrease symptoms, but it really does keep us in the sick care system. Which brings us to our guest today. I originally came across Dr. Leland Stillman during the COVID pandemic as one is his interviews were censored on YouTube, which told me right away I need to start listening to this man. Uh, just kind of like us, censored for speaking truth, opposing mainstream narratives in American healthcare. Honestly, he has been one of the most articulate, knowledgeable, and reasonable physicians I've come across. He understands nuance, systems. He critically analyzes research, is investigative, compassionate, and courageous. He earned his medical doctorate from the University of Virginia and specialized in internal medicine, completing a three-year residency at Maine Medical Center. I think what makes him unique and why I'm highly interested in his story is that not only did he receive the traditional allopathic medical training, but he's been mentored by naturopaths, acupuncturists, chiropractors, and homeopaths. He has a wealth of knowledge on the true determinants of health, and he's chosen to practice outside of the typical American sick care model. Instead, he's passionately devoted to restoring health, and that is why we brought him here today. 
Dr. Stillman, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first, I just want to, interest, I just want to learn more about you as the man. How did you begin this personal journey that brought you to this path in, in medicine that certainly kind of stands out and from what a lot of your colleagues and how they practice? When I was an infant, my sister and I became very sick. Ear infections, allergies, strep throat, cold and sinus infections, the whole, I mean, very, very common illnesses now for children. We were growing up in the, uh, I was born in 88. My sister was born in 86. Uh, we lived for our first four years, my first four years, her first six years of life in New York City, a very environmentally polluted, loud, noisy uh, brightly lit place, right? Many different health hazards um, for children there. And my mother went through the conventional allopathic system, um, hoping that it would give her answers that made life livable for herself, myself, my sister, and was very disappointed and did what many mothers in the last several decades have done, which is to go outside the conventional system looking for better answers and better solutions in integrative, natural, holistic, alternative, functional, whatever you want to call it, medicine. And so from an early age, I can remember going to see homeopaths and acupuncturists and traditional Chinese medicine doctors and chiropractors and all those people you mentioned. And as a child, I didn't have, you know, I mean, I trusted it because my mother did, you know, and uh, what else do you know as a child than to trust your parents? As I grew older, I took an interest in this. My father remained very staunchly traditional in his medical approach. And I actually will never forget the a moment where my mother was giving me melatonin to help me sleep at night. And my father said, you know, we don't know anything about this. Sure, it's natural, but what does that mean? We need to stop using this in the children. This is basically a science experiment. And I remember thinking this is an odd, it's odd to watch my parents arguing about this. And I don't really know what to think of it, but I'm just going to kind of nod and you know do whatever they end up deciding which is deeply ironic to me because now i use high dose melatonin very commonly in my practice to try and help people get their sleep back on track and i have a lot of experience now with using it so that was the environment that i grew up in i think it's very i think it's actually very common for people now you know 50% or more of americans use some kind of alternative or integrative medicine but what was unusual for me was that, uh, you know, one of my mentors, a naturopath, told me to go to medical school to get the conventional allopathic training as a bedrock from which to then practice. And I had the drive. I was young. I was uh, I was extremely driven. And so I went through the schooling. I applied. I got in. And I went through it, not fully understanding just how uh, deeply dysfunctional the system was. But then knowing that within that deeply dysfunctional system, there was a lot of value. And I had to figure out what that was in order to then help people navigate that system and get the value from it um, without uh, also having a lot of you know iatrogenic exposures or, or medical harm uh, done to them, let alone being exploited by a system that's really set up to make people money, not make people well. Yeah, I think I think that's the key statement here is about a system that is kind of set up just to really respond to to sy symptoms and is not really in any way uh, resolving the healthcare crisis that does exist in the United States. One of the questions that 
I often get when I go on podcasts is they'll say, well, how do you treat major depressive disorder? How do you treat ADHD? And, uh, you know, I let a lot of people know that, uh, you know, those are kind of just heuristics, kind of just shortcuts without any explanatory value. So mm. a, lot of, a lot of our listening audience right now um, probably doesn't have a whole lot of experience in uh, understanding what is functional medicine, for example, if we're going to use that term. And I don't know if that's what you apply to the work that you do. But let's just say a, a, a patient comes to you and it has been experiencing kind of chronic mood conditions, anxiety conditions. How does a functional medicine physician investigate that presenting problem, think about a case like that, and in comparison to maybe what would be traditional allopathic medicine? I go back to another Hippocrates quote. I love that you quoted the Hippocrates quote you shared first. That's plastered all over my social media because as soon as I found that, I thought this is this should be you know chiseled in stone above the entrance of every medical school in the world. And he also said, illnesses do not come upon us out of the blue. They are the result of small daily sins against nature. When enough sins have accumulated, illnesses suddenly appear. And within the really physiologic, Western physiologic model of the body based on physics from quantum to Newtonian physics, what you'll see is that the body tries to compensate for the mistakes you make and how you live, how you eat, what you, what you, you know, do for work, what you're exposed to in the environment as much as possible to maintain your ability to operate and function. Because if you lose functionality in a state of nature, it can be lethal. Um, you know, you look at something like a modern disease, it's actually relatively common now, like ulcerative colitis which is characterized by heavy bleeding, you know, from the from the distal uh, colon and rectum. If you go into an ulcerative colitis flare in a state of nature, you can bleed out and you can die. So the body is actually trying to manage and prevent and mitigate that disease as much as possible. And so you have to understand illness as this emergent phenomenon from this loss of the ability to compensate. And that arises from this accumulation of mistakes. Now, he said sins against nature. What does that mean? You know, what is our nature? I think that's a very fundamental, profound question. And we have to consider ourselves as part of nature. And when we do that and we consider what we're really optimally adapted to, it's actually not that complicated, right? We have a 24 hour day night cycle. You need to get an abundance of uh, natural light during the day, which is full spectrum sunlight from the near infrared up through the end of the visible spectrum and into the UV. You need to you know, eat the foods that occur locally in your environment in a seasonal pattern because they contain the nutrients that you need in order to compensate for the stresses of that environment in that season, right? Colorful fruits and vegetables grow in you know, extremely brightly lit latitudes, folate's very abundant in brightly lit locations. Why? Because the sunlight breaks down folate in the body and because sunlight is a stress and the thing you need biochemically to mitigate that stress is brightly colored pigments that allow you to soak up that energy without doing a lot of damage to your DNA. So when you start to see these patterns in nature, you begin to realize this is actually all very simple. Uh, but people make it complicated. I had a friend, Nick Gonzalez, who was a very um, well-respected integrative doc 
he specialized in the treatment of cancer. And he said, medical school is where they take um, simple things and make them complicated and they take complicated things and make them incomprehensible. And the more I studied and the more I looked back in the history of medicine, you know, some of the papers that have shaped my thinking on this aren't recent. They're a hundred years old or more because you read through these studies and you read through the accounts of physicians and you start to put together the pieces of this puzzle and you realize the more we deviate from nature, the more disease we begin to see. And when you focus on the illness as like what you called, a, I think, I think if I heard you correctly, a preheuristic or a heuristic, you you get fixated on the problem when the solution is always to focus on the patient's wellness. What are we going to do to build this patient's resiliency, their immunity, their uh, ability to rejuvenate, to rest, to recover? Because when you give the body what it needs, it will naturally do that. And I think Hippocrates said this, that or it was Paracelsus. He said, the physician treats, but nature cures. And that I think is the whole premise behind natural medicine as in a school of thought. And in the rest is details. And a lot of it is how can we, you know, cheat strategically, quite frankly, um, using things like melatonin. There's nothing natural about taking a capsule of melatonin, right? You can't go to the melatonin tree and pluck a, you know, ripe fruit loaded with melatonin off of it. You do take it in a capsule, but you can do these things to restore balance and health in nature. And that's, you know, what I'm really all about is how do we figure out how we can use modern technology to build our wellness, our resilience, our immunity, our health, uh, without shortcutting and without, um, making mistakes that lead to, um, bad long-term outcomes. So if functional or integrative psychology existed, which I wish it did, because then I would identify from that mm. perspective, I would be communicating that our emotions make sense that they're evolutionarily designed to serve us. And so if there is a problem that we're experiencing with mood or anxiety, it's multi, potentially multifactorial, right? It could be something that's related to our, our physical health and well-being and the manner of our lifestyle, but it could also be related to you know, some environmental problems that exist emotionally. Those emotions can be actually something we need to be paying attention to, to use to solve problems, maybe to escape danger or uh, to face, you know, traumatic situations or to overcome a necessary challenge. But in the current healthcare model, the symptoms in itself are identified as a disorder. So I get a lot of, I get a lot of flack for saying there's no such thing as ADHD. And what I mean by that is there's no discrete medical illness by the name of ADHD. You don't go in and you don't get any, uh, you know, objective testing done and we're not measuring progress. Uh, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to identify any organic mechanisms that are consistent that would lead someone to have ADHD. However, the symptoms of inattention or even in hyperactivity as they exist on a spectrum um, do exist and problems can arise from that. Uh, same thing with major depressive disorder. You know, I'm not going to say that major depression exists or low mood exists or the problems that we see um, related to, to mood certainly exist, but there's no discrete illness called major depressive disorder. And so um, a functional medicine physician, I, I imagine, would be looking at the symptoms as something that is serving the individual at the time, but represents that there is something that is happening either when the, with the environment or with the individual that is really like out of balance or um, 
you know, for lack of a better word, maybe diseased, right? And so you'd have to be an almost investigative as a as a manner in being able to under uh, to discover what are those factors leading to that. And so, how do you go about that investigative process? Absolutely. So it is a fascinating, fascinating uh, topic that you're you're getting at, which is this interplay between our physical bodies and our minds our spirits, however you want to contextualize them because it's, it's very hard. I mean, where, where do these things begin? Where do they end? Right. Uh, that's why I, I, the first thing I actually start to do with, with patients in my practice or with, cause I actually have a medical practice and then I have a coaching practice because a lot of what I do is I coach people into a healthy diet and lifestyle. And, you know, in the medical practice, there's prescribing, there's lab testing, we do all that. But a lot of people, they need coaching more than they need medical care. And for many of them, they need me to actually coach them and talk to them about their, you know, their goals so that they then know what to actually say to their doctor to get the care they need. But you'll find um, that, you know, no two patients are alike. And even the same patient is never the same one day to the next. And these illnesses or diseases, whatever you want to call them, they are absolutely multifactorial. And you do have to look at all the different factors that may be playing a role, but just the process of decision-making. Because ultimately what I start with with everyone who I take care of, no matter the capacity that they engage me, is I'm trying to figure out their goal. If the goal and the only goal is, I don't like the way I feel every day, how do I feel better? all these different things. And I start. I came from a very, I didn't actually like feelings. I didn't like therapy. I didn't like talking about emotions. I didn't want to take psychology courses. I wanted to understand the nitty gritty. I very much was fascinated by the biochemical, biophysical model of disease. And I worked through in the integrative world, just about every paradigm I could find looking at mold toxins, heavy metals, allergies, autoimmune diseases, um, problems with light, EMF pollution, uh, all these different various emotional or not emotional, biophysical, uh, biochemical, even biomechanical contributors to illness and specifically mental illness. But that model ultimately falls apart because there are psychosocial factors that play into them. That's not to say that the biochemical and biophysical doesn't have a role to play, right? Because if you're doing things that are going to manipulate in the end how your brain fundamentally works and light, sound, electromagnetic radiations, nutrition, this plays a critical role, right? In how your brain functions, the decisions that you make, you can take anyone and turn them into a um, uh, emotional train wreck if you expose them to the wrong environment, the wrong chemicals, but you can do the same thing with the wrong people. And I learned that the hard way, um, both frankly, both personally and professionally, you know, there's a lot of malignant personality types in medicine. And then I started to look because of my experiences as, as a physician dealing with these people as mentors, teachers, colleagues. And I realized that this initial instinct that I'd had that I needed to look at the biochemical, the, the, the biophysical, biomechanical, while important, I was missing this essential component of how people interact uh, and their psychosocial environment that was just driving just as much disease um, as the other things I'd been fascinated by. 
So yeah, I mean, I have to tease all of that apart when I'm looking at a case. And that is very challenging because it's an enormous number of different factors we have to work through, which is why I like to do things like group coaching. And when I do group coaching, I'm educating everyone on the call at the same time about the common factors that are causing their illness, uh, no matter what it may be. And likewise, when we do group coaching and people ask me about labs and what role the lab abnormalities they have may be playing in their illness, I talk to them about how the labs become deranged and what role they play. And I'll do the same thing if I um, if I have a feeling that someone's got a uh, psychosocial driver of their their illness, a toxic boss, a toxic work culture, a toxic marriage, toxic relationship. Um, you know, it's funny. I I joke with my patients. In order to get at their goals, I'll say, you know, what are your time? If I could snap my fingers right now and make three of your problems go away, and they can't be stepchildren, in-laws, or taxes, what would they be and why? <laughs> it always gets a laugh. But it gets at this idea of, you know, what are these problems? And then we work backwards from there to what's causing them. Yeah, stress is an absolute killer. And you see what it does to not only the human spirit, but to the physical body. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to get into some specifics. And, and some of these are on behalf of, of clients that I've had because you know, they're struggling in the current mental health system and they're, they're, they're struggling in the, the, the medical system. And as a, as a treating psychologist, I feel like due to our current both mental health and kind of physical uh, medical crisis that I think exists. I mean, if you have 60% of the adult population that is experiencing chronic illness, I mean, this is you know, an absolute crisis that exists. We have so many people coming into our center and they're getting younger and younger that you're mm. just physically unwell. Now this could be a selection bias on my part, but uh, I'm just seeing more and more people with endocrine disorders, adrenal dysfunction, thyroid yes. disorders, PCOS yes. in women. Um, my goodness, it's it's almost rare for me not to work with a depressed, severely depressed female, severely anxious female that hasn't been assigned that diagnosis of PCOS. And it just seems like our medical system is at a loss at how to treat these conditions. In fact, I'm concerned that some of the standard interventions are actually like worsening overall health. So first of all, I just mm -hmm. want to check in with you. Are you seeing something similar that, that I am seeing? And I am just interested in a new perspective on how to approach those conditions. Wait, what is PCOS? Polycystic ovarian syndrome. Okay, thank you. Without a doubt, I entirely agree with you. Um, you're not hallucinating. What's interesting is that... We talk about this within my practice. Um, me, my colleagues and I were like-minded all the time. We're, we're sort of dumbfounded that most clinicians don't seem to be concerned about the rising tide of disease. Because when you, I think the more empathy you have, the more you realize that the rising tide is becoming really, um, I'll never forget this moment. I was in the hospital in my last year of residency the hospital was running at capacity every week, week after week, month after month, in the middle of the summer. The middle of the summer is supposed to be the low season for medical care in hospitals. And I remember speaking to the chief of the internal medicine department, You know, supposedly one of the smartest people in the hospital, one of the people with the most clout, the most influence. And I asked him, I said, what's your plan for when January, December, February, flu season, the natural peak in death? and disease and acute illness that we see 
what's your plan? What are we going to do when the ICUs are overflowing? And he said, well, we've got some plans to make these two rooms in this wing into patient rooms. And then we're going to build, you know, we're going to demolish the parking garage and we're going to build a whole new wing of the hospital. And I thought to myself, this guy is completely missing the boat on the real problem here. The problem's not how do we have more capacity in the hospital? It's how does our civilization and our society and our economy sustain the loss of productive working people and working years in working productive people in order to pay for the care of the chronically ill, most of whom need a really serious conversation about why they're basically burning their health to the ground, one Twinkie hot dog hostess snack cake at a time. And you know, they just think, oh, well, we just need to add a couple more hospital beds, which to me is insane. It's like saying, you know, the house is on fire um, and, you know, we're going to, um, you know, I don't know, use a water pistol to try and put it out. So anyway, John Muir had this really fascinating quote that I love. He said, thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wildness is a necessity. And when I read that in my, you know, a couple of years ago when I found it, I love quotes for people who didn't realize that. I thought this is an incredible insight from a guy who knew nothing about medicine that our society is becoming sick because it's over-civilized mm. and people are really overstimulated. And what you said about stress is stress is such a fascinating word. Stress actually means to pull apart in, I believe it's Latin or maybe it's Greek. And what people don't realize is that there's eustress and there's distress. Eustress is stress that you can adapt to because you have the necessary resources in order to adapt to it. That is, you go to the gym, you do a bicep curl, your bicep gets bigger, your tendons get a little stronger, your bones where the, the tendons insert get a little bit stronger because you're putting force on it. There's a piezoelectric current that's generated by that through the bone. And that's why people who don't exercise essentially fall apart. And that's eustress. Distress is when you push the body into a state where resources have been exhausted and the body can no longer adapt. And you can live in that state for a long period of time, but eventually it always results in early death, premature morbidity, mortality, and the emergence of really significant disease. So, you know, that's the model I work with. We have to look at all stress as stress. And you look at concepts like total toxic load or total allostatic load or allostatic load, you realize that there's no one thing that's going to make people um, sick, they're all going to contribute. When people are asking me for, well, what's causing my this or my that? I say, you know, we say that, you know, guns kill people, but what we really mean is bullet wounds that cause massive exsanguination kill people. But it takes five fingers to hold a gun. It takes one finger to pull a trigger and it takes an entire working arm, brain, and central nervous system, not to mention, mention entire body to hold that gun and orient it in a certain direction to create that bullet track, right? So saying, well, what's the cause? It's like when people say, what's the cause of inner city violence? It's not guns, right? It's psychosocial determinants of that. Then also then relate to um, biochemical, biophysical uh, parameters. I remember reading this fascinating study where they found that there was a real change in trends of violence and crime in an inner city. I can't remember where, based upon the prevailing winds and how they f how they flowed over the local interstate, where obviously you know fossil fuels are being combusted, heavy metals are being released, hydrocarbons are being released, that then creates um, 
you know, air pollution that blocks certain frequencies of light and all of that, you know, if you, if you look at it, it, uh, it makes sense that at the big enough scale, it creates these small changes in perturbations. Um, there's a lot of vested interests that don't want people to look at that data because it has very important ramifications for how we should live, how we should treat one another and what property rights should be. Um, and that I think is what we're headed towards a real crisis of that right now because it's not sustainable anymore the way we've decided to live and the way we've set up society and our our laws. I'm interested in, in staying in this area a little bit, um, mostly in like, you talked about the psychosocial, but what I always have a really hard time with is when my body might be feeling not at its best, mm -hmm. my head goes towards physical fitness and diet. Mm -hmm. But the idea mm -hmm. of stress, not just being work related and having a bad boss, but like the personal conflicts in our life, how is that affecting our physical health? That is such a great question. And it's one of the things that I think we're most limited in, in terms of our methods. You know, in a perfect world, I would love to be able to walk around or, or implant some kind of device and look at neuro hormones and, and neurotransmitters in people's blood, let alone in their tissues, right? And, and see how they fluctuate with different situations in life, let alone look at them on like fMRI, like what's happening when, and we've had some of these studies, right? But they're limited by the fact that you can, you need, if you're going to do something like fMRI or PET, you're putting the patient in a machine, you know, you're telling them to think about something. You can't actually do that when someone's walking around living in the real world, right? And our, our medical lab testing is limited. You know, it's one draw in an office or a phlebotomy lab. Uh, you know, it's this tiny, tiny snapshot in time. But what and this is where something like HRV becomes incredibly useful for helping people. What's HRV? Heart rate variability. Okay. Heart rate variability is the variability in, um, oh boy, I'm about to butcher this. <laughs> uh, but it, it's a it's a measurement of the variability in different intervals within the uh, cycle of a heartbeat. Okay. Can, you, um, you know what's interesting about that? Because I just want to jump in there. So I just... Yeah. I just wrote a Substack on this. We were talking. I wrote a Substack on gratitude, actually. Mm, I remember there has been some research where a story is told, and the story, in some way, is like connecting to uh, human greatness of of mm -hmm. love and compassion, where the reader is actually experiencing some sense of positive emotion around gratitude, and it's and they're and they're connecting to it. Research has shown that uh, HRV syncs up with different people reading the same story. So um, not to mention, I mean, we can get into, you know, HRV and, uh, you know, you know, and stress and health and uh, a number of factors. But there, there's something that's tied into, um, and I, you know, we speak to it on here about how we're creators of our own reality. And where, mm. where our attention goes, where our energy flows, right? Mm -hmm. So where you're focused of your attention, if it's on, if it's on threat, it's on the next bad thing that's going to happen. Yes. If you're in survival mode, you're just trying to make it by each day. Uh, uh, speaking to the complexity and nuance of what you said, the body is going to enter into a, a state of dis-ease, right? It is not mm -hmm. at ease and we will eventually get sick. But some of the power that we've been able to be able to, 
see from certain interventions is that we have this way of focusing and controlling our attention from quieting our mind or, or changing our environment. And it has a, it has a entire shift on how our body reacts and responds. And HRV is like one of those things we can measure. Right. I got deep into using HRV in my practice as a clinician and a coach when I teamed up with Jim Laird, who's the strength and conditioning coach I work with now in my, in both actually the medical and the coaching practice. I realized very quickly about a year ago that I was going to have a massive benefit for my people from having Jim involved because he's an expert in strength and conditioning, but he's also, um, he's spent 25 years training people and he's taught me a lot. And a lot of the concepts I just related about stress, he really came to understand through his personal experience as somebody who uh, was at one point, one of the strongest people in the world, he squatted a thousand pounds at one time was his PR. He set the world record for that at the time. Yeah. And then in the example I used of ulcerative colitis, he actually then got ulcerative colitis like the exact same day that he set that PR. And then he tells a great story on a number of podcasts. People can look him up. He's had a lot of great um, appearances where he's told this story. He realized he needed to forgive some people. And then when he forgave them, finally, that went into remission, right? Now, it didn't help his body at the time that he was using huge doses of testosterone in order to become a power lifter and one of the world's strongest men. It didn't help that he was you know, running on nicotine, caffeine, ephedra, stimulants, you know, you get into the powerlifting world, they're they're really what they're doing is they're pushing their body into as much of a stress state as possible so that it can do things that are almost supernatural. And he then took that experience back into training people, understanding that, and he'd already done, I mean, a lot of work at you know D1 schools with professional athletes. And he brought HRV in when he met Joel Jameson, who's the innovator, I think probably the one of the leading innovators of HRV. And he realized that he could use this as a, as a metric to define and understand where people were with their rest and recovery. We use the Aura Ring, um, which is a, a device that has an airplane mode, so you're not being irradiated by it all the time, which we also keep track of. Um, but we use HRV to judge someone's ability to recover from uh, stress. And also how hard they've basically been living. Because if you take someone who's got a single digit HRV, um, that person's been living in a stress state for a long, long, long period of time. And they'll begin to see patterns in that data that help them understand what's actually making them ill. Um, this becomes very hard to isolate the variables, right? But but you'll you'll get them figuring out things like, you know, when my mother-in-law comes to visit, my HRV drops through the floor. Maybe I need to take a hard look at that relationship and how it's driving. Because stress, the, the reality of stress is that a true stress stimulates the release of the chemicals and hormones you need to respond to it. Cortisol, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, your body's got a finite capacity to make those, driven in part by your nutritional inputs, right? But also by your natural ability to synthesize and secrete them. Um and when you exhaust those, you tend to run people into those low HRV ranges, and it becomes an incredibly powerful tool, particularly for people who have very poor insight. Many people will tell you, I feel fine, I feel fine, I feel the way I've felt for four decades, now I just happen to have this new illness that I need you to help me get rid of. And we say, you think you're fine because you're totally habituated to living in a stressed out state. That's your norm. 
Then you get into their early childhood events, which are often very traumatic, um, cold, distant families, abuse, sexual abuse, incest. You've heard all of it before in your counseling sessions. And then you begin to realize this person doesn't know how to shut off. This person doesn't know how to relax because when they do that, those feelings bubble up and they have to deal with them. And that becomes very difficult. And that's where you know, one of the most important things for me to do is, is to say to somebody, hey, listen, here's your data. Here's your functional medicine lab testing. Here's what it says about you. Um, it may say you've got a certain toxic burden. You know, I have seen people with things like high mercury levels or um, high aluminum levels. I've seen that and I've seen it contribute to illness and I've seen people get better when you normalize it, but it's no um, panacea because all these other elements are you know, psychosocial stress, traumatic events are playing a role in exacerbating that. And the other thing is they play together. Like, for example, if you've got a high achieving CEO who's running away from childhood trauma and he's doing it by drowning himself in his work and achieving more and earning more and making more and closing more deals, right? What is he going to do? He's going to reach for the energy drink. What's the energy drink bottled in? It's bottled in aluminum. What happens when you compress CO2 in water in aluminum? It's an acidic medium. It's going to pull aluminum out. One of the highest aluminum levels I've ever seen in someone's hair came from a CEO in exactly that situation, right? Wow. Yeah, it's it's fascinating what you find and you help people understand, hey, listen, you really need to take a look at how these emotions that you have and are not dealing with are driving your behavior and your bad habits. I mean, the number one thing I'm looking for when I have a tough case is where in the past is the narcissist, the psychopath, the abuse, the exploitation, um, the things that have created these negative feelings that people are. I look at, you know, it's funny, Hippocrates uses the word sin in his description. Sin in the Greek uh, originally means uh, falling short of the mark. We've It's become very changed in the Christian Western world because of its use in religion, but it means literally how far your arrow falls from the center of the target. And um, with regards to that, you know, when I look at, at what people are doing compared to what they want to be doing, we have to, I look at it as they're reaching for something as an almost just an anesthetic to the feelings they have that they don't want to talk about, that they don't want to feel. And that's actually become more and more part of my practice, particularly over the last year when I really realized it was a big deal. Yeah, but the, the idea of healing yourself with forgiveness mm. for the layperson is really, really hard to grasp and understand. Yeah, but let it me is. let me jump in there. I don't think it's that simple, Sean. I, th I think what Dr. Stillman is actually saying here is that you know you can't get adequate medical care in a 15-minute you know, in clinical interview yeah. and, a, and a prescription drug. And this speaks to the complexity of it. And I think that's the take-home point for our, our our listening audience right now. They often speak about their entire uh, life experience in terms of, of the system. And sometimes there is really, you know, like profound experiences that have shaped them in the way that they live. And I think you know, when you look at it through a coping model that maybe they're doing the best they can to survive in those moments, but that manner exactly. in which they're surviving has real significant consequences. And doc, I, I treat post-traumatic stress. So, I mean, there are people who come in who have been rape victims, who were, who mm. were stalked, who, um, you know, were combat veterans. And that chronic, that chronic uh, stress that, that they experience, it's almost like their, their brains are now hardwired 
to be able to prevent that trauma again. So they're so hyper vigilant to any cue that would suggest that there's danger. They're, they have a really hard time just settling the, the nervous system. And so I always come back to, yes, we have some good PTSD treatments, but in itself, they're somewhat limited unless it's an entire somatic, nutritional, and lifestyle change. I don't think we see some of the, the growth that we're looking for in someone to try to return to somewhat baseline functioning. So I want to get to some, um, I guess the, the best way for me to kind of phrase it is just some from practical steps about restore, restoring health, okay? Um, I want to keep it simple. KISS method, keep it simple, stupid, right? Mm -hmm. I know Confucius said that the man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. And I think that's the way I have to look at it with a lot of my clients. Very small steps to restoring mm. their life um, and their health. The first one I want to do is I want to talk about um, diet. I'm going to ask you the question that I've asked other physicians who've come on this, this podcast we tend to get different answers, which kind of speaks to, I think, the challenges in the, in the literature. But is there an optimal human diet? So if, if I'm even going to treat PTSD, for example, um, there has to first be a foundation of, of health with, with diet because mm -hmm. some of my clients will be anorexic, bulimic. Others will be using food to cope, obese, obesity, and you know just eating a lot of foods that are both processed and just toxic. Now, if we're going to start making recommendations for a foundational diet in, in mental health, is there an optimal way of living? Well, I like to point out to people that we're the only animal on planet Earth that eats a non-local, non-seasonal diet and argues about what to eat. <laughs> and that isn't necessarily to say that everyone in the same latitude or zip code needs the same diet because you also put different demands on your body. If you look at a phenomenon such as, for example, cold-induced thermogenesis, which is the response of the body to cold to produce heat, right? That requires a certain variety of nutrients. It's a massive stimulus to your sympathetic nervous system. You'll see this all over social media because people get a lot of attention for doing it, right? They jump in their ice bath. They talk about how it's raising their dopamine. Well, where is it raising the dopamine and is that a good thing, right? You know, I can go into my drive driveway and rev my car engine up to 9,000 RPMs. You know, is that really impressive? Uh, is that good for me? Is it good for the car? <laughs> we don't use a lot of cold therapy in my practice for precisely this reason. But it's important to understand that if you're, say, a Navy SEAL uh, going through buds at Coronado and you're spending hours in the Pacific at 55 degrees and you're, do you know what they call the shivering that they go through when they're in the Pacific in buds? Do you know what they call it? No. They call it jackhammering mm -hmm. because they're literally shaking their body up and down like you're operating a jackhammer. Huh. And they, some of the seals whose, whose memoirs I've read, they'll, they will literally remember that they'll have like flashbacks to just being that cold. And uh, I've experienced that because, not buds, but I've experienced that level of cold because I wanted to find out what application ice bathing had to medical care. And I would do crazy things with friends of mine, like, you know, take 15, 20 minute ice baths in like zero degree water where you got to break the ice to get in. And I can tell you, it's a really profound response, but I've also never seen more abnormal 
metabolic labs than my own labs after a long season of persistent ice bathing. Shit. Well, because I'm doing this right now, Doc. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to bring up a lot of these kind of hormetic effects and mm -hmm. and potential benefits. So right. Right, right now, I am trying to follow certain protocols, um, both sauna and and cold plunging. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing ice baths, but I can only get it down generally to about like maybe 48 to 50 degrees. Sure. Trying to get like 15 minutes a week. And you know, I don't know if this is placebo or or not um but the the effect that i'm i'm receiving is a boost in mood for a, a period of time and focus and energy for an extended period of time um mm -hmm. uh, i actually love how it makes me feel although i'm nervous as hell before i jump in there it's like i'm scared to do it like i hate it like the mm -hmm. idea of it is like tends to be sure. worse than what it actually is sure but i'm experiencing all these profound mood focus and energy benefits. So are you, are you telling me that that's something that I should think twice about doing? Jim said something really profound to me maybe a month ago. He said, there are no rules, only tools. And you have to look at everything in your toolbox as a clinician, as a tool. So if someone comes to me and they say, look, I have no choice. I am a forester in Northern Maine. I'm going to be working in January. I need you to help me cope with the cold stress, right? Or if somebody comes to me and they say, look, I'm addicted to ice bathing. <laughs> I need you to at least help me to not run my body into the ground because it's a stress. It's a stress and you can exhaust anyone with that stress, right? I mean, the whole point of BUDS is to wear out the people who are not psychologically capable of dealing with the level of discomfort that you have to be able to cope with as a Navy SEAL. It's not about, I mean, it's you need a certain baseline level of physical fitness, but I mean, all the guys who tend to go into that, especially now, um, they've all read the same things, done a lot of the same training regimens. It's not like some kind of secret of how to get physically fit for something like that. So um, you have to look at it as a tool and then you have to think about, well, what stress is this going to put on the person and then how are we going to help them cope with it? So when you turn on your sympathetic nervous system, that sympathetic drive, what are you going to do? You're going to make dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine. You're going to have what we call cold-induced diuresis, which means loss of of uh, of urine water from the kidney because of the increased blood flow. That means you're going to want to increase hydration. You're going to want to increase nutrition and the load in your diet of the foods that are going to fuel that sympathetic drive, right? So you're going to want purine-rich meats, which are also loaded with things like B6, zinc, certain cationic minerals, magnesium, potassium, et cetera, because those are necessary to produce that response, right? So if you, a recipe for disaster is somebody who undereats and gets really super cold, that person's going to waste away and be an absolute train wreck. You can look, look at their HRV. It's going to be in, in, the, in the single digits in no time. So you have to be mindful of that. Now, if you give me a classic example, this would be high achiever, high intensity job, some psychosocial stress and drama in their personal relationships. Personally, I find at least anecdotally that you know the real high achievers always have some amount of, of psychosocial and interpersonal stress that's contributing to their issues. And then the stress in their life drives them to undereat, or they get this idea into their head, I'm sick, I need to go on X, Y, or Z diet that doesn't take into account the unique stress 
whether it's their cold therapy habit or their jujitsu habit or whatever it is, right? These are unique stresses that can become extreme if you're not matching their nutrition um, to the demands of their life and their stress you're going to get a bad outcome. And that's one reason why I'm always focused with patients at the beginning of the goal. What is your goal? What do you want? And most people want to look good and feel good, right? But what does that mean? Um, some people looking good means being an absolutely yoked head turner who walks down the beach and gets every woman looking at him for a hundred yards. For some people, you know, you look at a guy like David Sinclair, who is very heavy in the longevity research. He talks about eating one meal a day, and uh, you know calorie restricting and protein restricting well if you protein and calorie restrict and eat one meal a day it doesn't matter how many hours you spend at the gym you are never going to be the impressive head turning guy at the beach you know who women are chasing after and the reality is you look at guys who go after the physique um there's a lots of anecdotal um and i i don't know if there's ever anyone's ever really studied this but i mean a lot of the bodybuilders who want to look a certain way, they'll do it with performance enhancing drugs and it will shorten their lives, right? Countless examples of heavy, um, high achieving athletes who died young basically because they drove their car at 95 miles an hour because they were so driven. And, you know, you'll look at, you know, studies they'll do in psychology of high achievers in sports and they'll say, look, if we could give you a pill, that you would win in the next four gold medals you competed for, but you'd die in 24 months. Would you take it? And a huge proportion of them say yes. And it's really interesting being a clinician trying to help people balance, you know, what is your goal and what should your goal be? Because everything we're doing therapeutically is either going to help you achieve that goal or not. And we'll actually wave off on working with people whose goals are not compatible. You know, a woman who wants to be a world-class runner or marathoner who also wants to have you know a baby these are very difficult goals to achieve simultaneously because the 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 signal you're sending your body when you're running long long distances is we live in a state of chaos and scarcity we're running away from a natural disaster a war this is why women who run very long distances will often develop amenorrhea their period will go away their sex steroid hormones will tank right so a woman comes in and says look i want to lean out and be an incredible runner, but I also want to have a kid in the next two to three years, these, uh, these goals are not compatible. So that's the stuff we coach people through in our coaching programs. And it's part of why, you know, a lot of my colleagues are offering online courses and I understand the appeal of online courses, but the reality is something like 80% of online courses are never completed by the person who purchases them. And we also found that, um, you know, the more we worked with people, the less we could give one size fits all prescriptions. And that comes back to your question about diet. What is the optimal human diet? It's so dependent. And some of this must come back to biochemical individuality, right? Somebody with an MTHFR mutation that slows down their conversions of folate or homocysteine or B6 may have an abnormally high physiological requirement for that vitamin. You can't feed them the same way as somebody who doesn't have that mutation. So that's where I take you know, nutrition as a very nuanced, very end of one uh, process. In, in my field, I don't know if you're aware of the work of Dr. Christopher Palmer, who is speaking about a, a lot of uh, psychiatric conditions, like severe psychiatric conditions, bipolar mm -hmm. disorder, uh, schizophrenia, and so forth, potentially mm -hmm. being a, uh, a reaction to metabolic illness. And he mm -hmm. is intervening with the 
ketogenic diet. Yes, and that, I followed him on Twitter, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, really interesting that a ketogenic diet could lead to remission of bipolar symptoms or schizophrenia symptoms. I just want to get your take on that. Have you read George Watson, Nutrition in Your Mind? I have not. Look it up. Okay. It'll blow your mind. <laughs> have you heard of um, Doris Rapp? Is This Your Child is the, name, is the title of her book? No. You will also really enjoy that. Okay. Got a lot There's, of reading to do, brother. Countless clinicians in the history of medicine who found very unusual associations in their practice if they were willing to look for them. So mm. I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, it's actually very well reported in the literature that there is a subset of people who are allergic to gluten, but the only manifestation of this immunological reaction is in the central nervous system. This is because of cross-reactivity between gliadin protein, which is found in gluten-containing products, and um, cells in particularly the cerebellum, uh, I think it's the Purkinje cells. Are you familiar with this? Somewhat. And so you'll have a certain proportion of people who um, will develop these neuropsychiatric symptoms in response to gluten, and they'll be misdiagnosed as some kind of neurodegenerative disease or ataxia. And there's these long case studies and case reports of people when they do these gliadin antibodies, they find this this reaction and they resolve their neuropsychiatric illness by putting them on a gluten-free diet. Now, what I find fascinating about gluten is that it's one protein in one food. And we are, I mean, there's dozens of ingredients on the shelf. This is why diets like, I think it was the Feingold diet back in the 80s. He proposed that if you put kids on single ingredient whole food diets without you know, dyes and additives and processed foods and things like that, you'd, you'd have healthier, happier, more functional kids, right? But even then, the question is, what's the mechanism there? Is it that the immune system is reacting to something in the food? Is it that the food additive has a contaminant? Did you guys know that hydrogenated oils are contaminated with nickel because nickel is the catalyst that's used to hydrogenate the double bonds? So are people who are sick because they're eating hydrogenated oils sick because the hydrogenated oils are bad for their lipid biochemistry? Or are we loading these people with nickel that then creates a certain amount of oxidative stress that then degrades their metabolic machinery, inhibits their mitochondrial function, and reduces their ability to generate energy within the cell, right? These are very academic questions that all come back to very simple truths like processed food is bad for you, yeah. which is why in the vast majority of the epidemiological literature, you'll see very clearly that the more processed food you you eat, the higher your risk of death. Um, and you know you don't need a PhD in order to figure out that that's a good idea. Um, staying in this area of uh, restoring mm. your health, um, and you brought up radiation. So, mm. how does radiation, electromagnetic fields, affect human health? And just so I clearly understand what electromagnetic fields mm -hmm. are, is it in every device that we plug in? So. This gets into the quantum physics of the electromagnetic force. Uh, so what people don't realize is that the electromagnetic force is this very spooky thing. You know, Einstein's original work for which he was made famous, right? His general relativity, E equals MC squared, energy and mass are interrelated. Um, but what's fascinating about the other elements of his work is are things like the photoelectric effect. So if you shine light on a specific metal and the lights of a specific frequency, you can induce an electrical current in that material, right? What's interesting is that if you induce an electrical current, that electrical current can then create that 
create light. That's what you do when you turn on an old incandescent bulb, right? And so light, visible light, um, non-visible light, which, and we see a very narrow portion of the electromagnetic spectrum from the reds down at the low end up to the blues and violets, and then ultraviolets north of that. And then you get ionizing radiation north of that, and you have um, uh, low frequencies, radio, microwave radiation, then extreme low frequency radiation down below that. So it all exists on a spectrum. And uh, what's interesting about it is that you also have electrical and magnetic fields that are induced by electrical flow. So it's all related and that's makes it kind of difficult to, it's part of why there's not a lot of public understanding of it. And the other thing is it's not, uh, it's not linear. Like for example, and when I say linear, it's not really necessarily the right word. It's not simple. Like I can't tell you that um, everyone's uh, computer that may be exactly the same is going to put out the same types of radiation. It's going to depend on wiring errors in the house. It's going to depend on irregularities in the electrical grid. It's going to depend on what other devices they plug in. It's very, it's very inconsistent. Mm -hmm. But the point is, this is a really interesting element or 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 thread in the history of science. The guy who wrote the best work on this, in my opinion, is a guy named Robert Becker. He was a pioneer of really regenerative medicine back in the 19, I think, 60s and 70s. He pioneered the first um, uh, first device that could be used to stimulate the both of both the growth of bone. And uh, his funding was eventually cut because he got into looking at the negative health effects of microwave, radio wave, radiation, and then electrical and magnetic fields. Because at the time, the DOD and the government in general, they saw electromagnetic technologies, radar, you know, um, they needed very powerful radios in order to communicate with nuclear submarines deep beneath the ocean. They saw this as essential to national defense. And in many respects, it is. If we were to allow... Uh, for example, a, a, a enemy nation to develop more superior electromagnetic devices and uh, technologies to us, that would make us very vulnerable. If you look at the greatest tactical or strategic vulnerability of the United States right now, in fact, it's probably the electrical grid. One EMP, one coronal mass ejection could take out the whole US electrical grid. And it's estimated by the government that 90% of Americans would die if that were to happen because of shortages of food, water, uh, lack of sanitation, and then civil unrest that would result because of that. And not getting too deep into that, the, the point is just that the DOD decided they needed to cover up the negative health effects of these devices. And then on top of that, a lot of these um, technologies were then basically made available um, through the government to private industry. And then private industry is suddenly making millions and billions and trillions of dollars off of uh, modern tech devices, consumer electronics that rely on these technologies, cell phones, um, MP3 devices, uh, laptops, tablets, you name it, right? They all run on wireless radiation and they all run on electricity. So this is a very inconvenient truth for those industries. 
what I find interesting about it is when I first got into the literature on it, it became clear to me that these were disrupting cellular bioenergetics at a quantum level, which is why most biochemists and cellular biologists have absolutely no earthly idea that this is a real problem. And they generally pan people like me who say that it is. But when you start practicing with this in, in medicine, and you actually get people to buy into it and to hardwire their Wi-Fi routers and start putting their phone on airplane mode and stop using every new wireless gadget, which to me has become, I mean, the the wirelessness of our of our society has become almost comical. Wireless refrigerators, wireless dishwashers, wireless washers and dryers. You really need to be able to control your washer or dryer from your cell phone in the parking lot of your grocery store. What happened to people? Mm -hmm. Get off the couch and go use it manually. So I was initially most, most concerned with the effects of these wireless uh, radiations on the cell, on human biology. I still am. But what's become most fascinating to me is the fact that these technologies have really powerful impacts on how people interact. I think the cell phone is probably... I look at it as a weapon of mass destruction that is truly tearing the family apart. You know, I, I remember re I saw this post the other day. Um, it was a it was a collection of things that a child psychiatrist had heard from her, you know, child patients, and these kids were saying things like, "I wish I was as important as my mother's cell phone." Mm -hmm. And I mean, I blessed feel blessed to have grown up in a time when cell phones were not a thing. Uh, because I, you know, they become they're addictive. There's no way around it. They have no incentive to make the product non-addictive, and because of that, it's changing dynamics in families. It's changing dynamics amongst kids. You see the kind of content that young people are putting out on social media. It's really horrifying. How it's a giant experiment in um, how much what happens when you when you um, you give kids unfettered access to essentially the whole world. And not surprisingly, they wind up addicted to pornography, video games, uh, whatever else it is out there that's uh, being engineered to be addictive. And I, I look at this and I think this is this is really when they're whenever you're on a wireless device, you're not interacting with people in person. What you mentioned earlier about HRV and the way that people's nervous systems and bodies sync up in person, I think we are only beginning to understand how the human body relates to other human bodies in space-time, for lack of a better term. When you look at studies like, for example, it's well known that church attendance reduces your risk of death. Why is that? You know, I'm no doubt that there's a component of this, that you're in a room with a bunch of other people. When you, when you do things like sing songs at the same tempo, pace, volume, you're actually creating the same set of stresses and pressures on your thorax. It makes sense that you're, and we call this in in uh, physical exam terms, we call the variation of the beating of the heart with the tempo of the breath, respirophasic variation. When you're singing with other people, your hearts are literally going to run into the same rhythm, the same variation, the same beat even if they're not exactly the same, right? How does this affect our mental health? How does this affect our physical well-being? These are the kinds of questions that cardiologists should be asking, but they've been totally distracted by the biochemical, biomechanical model of disease. 
And it's no surprise then that the average person's got a record high risk of heart disease. Now, this is, this is fascinating because I'm really interested in the mechanisms of action of psychotherapies. So mm. one of the things I'm always asking myself is, all right, what is the key ingredient here? If there's a, if there's a RCT that's right. being uh, implemented, what is the key ingredient? And there's so much that we don't know. And I've been talking on this podcast about sometimes the, the, the power of human connection, the power of human empathy. And a lot of my clients are hypersensitive to the moods of others or the experience of others that there are clients who will be able to almost experience and feel my emotions before we even walk back to my office. Like this uncanny ability to experience that energy. And I have been experimenting with meditation prior to my sessions, sending blessings just internally, quietly in my own mind, slowing my own heart rate and trying to connect with my clients in different ways, non-verbally. And it is amazing the power that that can have on the person who's sitting in front of me. That I don't think we've been able to even really tap in to frequency and energy in, in ways that are so beyond where we've evolved to at this point. But there's no doubt that we influence each other by our own emotional states. And I'm seeing that I, I, sometimes I just think that the, the power of a psychotherapy session can sometimes just be that relationship between two people, the right match. And that's mm -hmm. why I think the, the medical model of psychiatric illness and some of the ways that we've designed therapies. I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist, so I, I completely understand how important that scientific method and empirical investigation has been. Mm -hmm. But I'm training an entire staff of co in cognitive behavioral therapy and the outcomes vary so greatly. We do our own outcomes here. Sometimes it just comes to the, the quality of that relationship and that, that state, that emotional state that a person can bring to a to a, a relationship. Mm. I agree. And what I find fascinating about this is that, you know, we're, uh, I think that societies, sometimes I view what I do as mostly remembering things people never should have forgotten in the first place. Mm. One of my favorite books is called The Influence of Ocular Light on Metabolism in Animal and in Man by Fritz Hallwich was published in 1976. It includes references to papers as old as the 19-teens. And it's just a long description of all the literature up into the 1970s of the effects of light as it's perceived through the eye on metabolism. And it's shocking, mm. shocking. And then you have these people who are like, we've just discovered that you know, lack of light causes this thing called seasonal affective disorder. And I think if you read Fritz Hallwich, this is the logical conclusion you would draw from looking at these papers that they published in the 40s and 50s and 60s. There's nothing new under the sun. When you go back to things like traditional Chinese medicine, thousands of years old, right? What's a typical um, course of treatment look like? It's a, not only a, a complex prescription for a diet lifestyle, potentially some acupuncture, which for the record is an electromagnetic therapy based on this system of meridians of electromagnetic potential in the body. Becker really clearly lays that out in his book, The Body Electric. But they talk about energy. You need the energy of the sun hitting your body. You need the the energy of your breath. And, and then you look at what they do in healing people with Qigong and Tai Chi. They're manipulating their breathing. 
They're manipulating their pelvis rib cage position. They're manipulating their axial and appendicular skeleton to, I mean, you look at things like EMDR, right? Where you're stimulating both sides of the body in order to access things in the central nervous system. What's the difference between that and a movement that's um, bilateral shifting stimulatory through Tai Chi or Qigong? Are these things all relying on similar mechanisms of action? I find it disappointing that we live in a society where so much money is being driven into drug therapy, molecular biology, when if you took to all these PhDs and you directed their activities towards understanding how all these ancient practices, many of which are considered to just be superstitious, uh, how they actually worked, what could we then accomplish? Innovating on things that you know have already been around for and have a proven track record of thousands of years. This is some of the things that we we work with people to help them understand when we coach them or when they become patients in the practice because we're obviously virtual and that you lose a lot in that virtual interaction, but we try to help people plug into local uh, things that they need in order to get these needs met because I do view them as needs. And I look at n- nourishment and nutrition is a really interesting word. It, to nourish means to raise up properly. It has nothing to do with an input of something that you then use to create something new. It, it has this whole, it's a whole process of nourishment is is raising up in a way that is good. And when you think about that, you start to think I started to think about relationships as either you know nourishing or or toxic, as either um, or exercise as nourishing or toxic. And, and a lot of the times the dose makes the poison, right? Mm. But it's a very important concept for people to get that they can't just live their life and be healthy by focusing on, you know, counting their oatmeal flakes or, you know, um, hitting a PR, you know, that's every new, every week or every other week or whatever. A lot of the things that people get hyper-focused on in the fitness, nutrition, and wellness industry. Um, I feel like I can talk to you for like another hour, so I I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'd love to come back. I, I, I would love that too. Also, just before we, we close out, um, how do you achieve balance in your life? There's so much knowledge that you have. And in terms of, you know, reducing your exposure to electronic uh, devices in your home and then finding the balance between work, what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah. Can we like even simplify that more? Because sometimes I just like to put these things in, in kind of some packages here. If we were going to provide uh, our listening audience with some actionable steps to really incorporate into their life that is going to have the most robust impact mm-hmm. on their on their health. You know, let's try to simplify it because right right now I'm trying to put together this life changing <laughs> habit series. Um, okay, that little yeah. steps that people can take. So Jim, uh, Jim basically proposed these five fundamental habits to me, and I said, "This is great. This is a good starting point for everyone." And the five fundamental habits we emphasize with people are get outside three times a day for a 10-minute walk. Make it a walk without your phone on, without a podcast playing. Just go out in nature, as little stimulation as possible, and make it more an act of observation than an act of... Because most people, when they go outside, they walk in the same mindset that they were just sitting at their desk. Go outside, take a moment to feel grateful for the sun on your face and the birds in the trees and the you know, sound of the wind rustling the leaves, whatever you may be surrounded by, right? Get outside three times a day, drink high quality water. In your world, you should look at the literature on fluoride and its effects on the central nervous system. You guys are aware of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. We try and get everybody off of fluoridated water, whether they go to spring water or reverse osmosis water. 
uh, and hydration goals are something we work with people to understand because again, that's something that people will constantly mess up. Uh, eat a protein at every meal. Um, get the lights off at night, which is also synonymous with reducing your stimulation three to four hours before bed, you know, quieter music, slower tempo, more relaxing tones, less stimulation from cell phones, tablets, computers, turn those off ideally and open a book, you know, talk to someone who you live with, you know, be a normal low tech human. Um, and then number five is have community, have some kind of consistent social interaction with people around you that's in person and that's positive and encouraging and builds you up. Those are the top five things. And we, the reason we created those and implemented those is that Jim and his training realized that if you didn't get people doing these fundamentals, it really didn't matter what you added. You know, it's like putting a spoiler on a, you know, 94 Prius or a nine. I don't even know if that was the year <laughs> they made the Prius. You're 94 Corolla, right? It's like, you know, listen, we really need to talk about other things, right? Um, these fundamentals are essential. It doesn't matter what you trick the car out with if the engine doesn't have spark plugs that work. So we focus on that. Once we get that dialed in, we give people more advanced stuff to work on. And the reality with that is that once you get those fundamentals in play, then everything you do on top of that, no matter what it is, um, works better anyway. Brilliant. Um, listening audience. So I, I know a lot of people probably have some specific questions. What we're going to ask mm -hmm. is if you can email us, listening audience, specific questions for Dr. Stillman, and maybe we can bring him back for a question answer period on some of these things. I want to end it um, because I felt like we got away from this. Uh, when we talk about these hermetic effects, cold exposure and heat exposure, mm. are, would you advise me to stop doing the, uh, the ice baths? Um, I'm thinking that it's doing something to boost my immunity as well as having some of these other effects that this, this is really good for me. Would you advise me against it? This is a very common type of question that we get. And we have to know more about your context in order to give you a good answer. Okay. And that's why we have coaching programs. Okay. <laughs> good answer. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. how, how can people find out more about you and your work? So they can join my mailing list at stillmanwellness.com. Uh, that list will then give you access to our free weekly uncensored webinar. That's Jim and I, where we talk about a different topic every week. Uh, you'll also get notifications for my uh, YouTube videos, lives, masterclasses, et cetera. And uh, they can apply to become a patient of the medical practice at stillmanmd.com. And then we do the coaching through Stillman Wellness and we'll include a link for your listeners for some special offers. I think we have some discounts for them uh, that will allow them to get into our coaching programs for a better price and access our course courses for, I think, 50% off. Great. So, yeah. Really grateful for your time, Dr. Stillman. And we know we had some tech issues prior to getting this started. So, yeah. you know, you're really gracious. Well, I'm really grateful for you guys. I love everything that you're doing. It's very refreshing to talk to people about the brain. Like it's not just some collection of neural circuits that run on neurotransmitters that we can just manipulate with drugs that boost and block and, you know, change reuptake and all this other, you know, myopic. Yeah. Um, I think there's an awakening. And I think a yeah. lot of people now are, be, are are much more attentive to these conversations mm -hmm. and really open to a lot of what you're you're talking about. So, Dr. Stillman, I want to thank you for a radically genuine conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you both. 
Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.